0: Last time out, I told you I was doing a, a sermon this series, doing a sermon series this year on the great characters of the Bible, and the last one I had done was on Joshua. And, and that was so great. Like the book of Joshua, is, it's this great triumphant story of God fulfilling all the promises and, and uh, have a righteous generation to follow God with all their hearts and of this wonderful and selfless leader who led his people to victory. And Joshua has such, such a happy ending. The children of Israel win the war with the, with the help of God, of course. And at the end, Joshua asks Israel to promise to always love God with all their hearts. And they all say, yes, of course we will. And the book ends, and it was great. So, of course, I turn the page, and I start to read the book of Judges. Congregation, I'm so depressed. I'm not kidding. I, I, I read my Bible at night before I go to sleep. And like, I, was like, I was like, I don't want to do this. This, is so, this story is so sad. So All throughout the Torah, God is planting the seeds for this perfect society. The laws of Torah envision a world where no one ever goes hungry or has to be poor. The corners of every field are left to those who need help. Every man has a responsibility to his neighbor. Everyone gets to rest from work, even the animals, even the land gets to rest one year and seven. And the land that God gave to his people can never leave their family. Even if they sell it, it will be returned to them in the Jubilee year. Israel would need no king because God will be their king and rule over them. It's this beautiful, beautiful vision. But then you get to the book of Judges and we just see this harsh reality that Israel never established any of the things that God commanded. They never created the ideal society. They never created the Jubilee year. They never created anything that Moses and Joshua and God dreamed of. Instead, at the beginning of the book of Judges, we read that after the death of Joshua, the children of Israel began intermingling with the Canaanites. They started marrying their woman and started to worship their gods. So rather than create an ideal society, the children of Israel were content to become just another nation. So they turned away from God. And they worshipped idols of wood and stone. And over time, forgot the teachings of the Torah. So in return, God doesn't so much punish them, as much as he withdraws his protection from Israel. And he allows their enemies to overtake them and subjugate them. This isn't done to punish Israel. God allows this, so that in their misery, Israel will remember the God who delivered them from the hands of Egypt and cry out for him to save them one more time. And God always does. See, Judges is a book of repeating patterns, spiraling, unfortunately, in a downward spiral. Israel sins. God allows the enemies to oppress them. Israel cries out for help, and God saves them. Wash, rinse, repeat. No matter how faithful God is, Israel always forgets, and returns to the idols and to their sin. It's a tough book. There is one bright spot, though. One redeeming value. In every generation, when Israel is being repressed or oppressed, God raises up a deliverer to lead his people back to freedom and to remind them who their God is. These remarkable people are called the Judges. So, judges. What, what does judges mean? So, the word team doesn't mean judge like in the, in like the Judge duty sense. It's, these people didn't rule on matters of law. They were tribal leaders who would rally the entire nation of Israel together under a single banner and, in t- and lead them in times of war. So, despite everything, the book of Judges actually starts out pretty good. The first few chapters of the book tell the stories of people like Othniel, Ehud, and and Deborah. We read Deborah's song, you know, Haftorah portion this week. So these are epic stories. And they're also really violent. So be warned if you're going to read them to your kids. But the sense that you get from them generally is that these were people. These people were truly great leaders. They were faithful to God, and they genuinely led Israel into long golden ages of peace and faithfulness. But, as I said before, Judges is a book of repeating patterns, spiraling down. And as we keep reading through the book of Judges, we see that the quality of these Judges begins to decline. The Judges at the beginning of the book are, were the righteous and faithful. And the Judges we read about at the end are corrupt, and sinful, and ultimately ineffective leaders who were unable to establish any kind of lasting peace in Israel. So, I guess my question I have for today is, what happened? If the first half of the book of Judges is good and the last part is bad, what will we find if we look right in the middle? Where did it all go wrong? And what caused this decline? And what lessons might we be able to learn from this dark and difficult book? So I think the answers to those questions are found in this story. That's right in the middle of the book of Judges. The story acts as a fulcrum. You guys know what a fulcrum is? You ever see like a lever? It's like a triangle and then there's like a board on it. And the fulcrum kind of balances everything out. So this story acts as like the fulcrum of this book and it, as it pivots from good to bad. So today, let's look at the story of Gideon. So if you guys have your Bibles, you can uh, pull them out right now to Judges 6. So the story of Gideon is expounded in the chapters 6 and 6. Seven and eight of judges. And then the stories about his sons go on to uh, even to chapter nine, and this is significant in itself. So, up until this point, the stories of all these different judges have been very short and formulaic. Israel sins, God appoints a judge, the judge leads Israel to victory and peace in the land. Now, in contrast, Gideon's story goes into far more detail about the man himself. So the first part of his story is all about his own faith development before he even picks up a sword. And after he defeats Israel's enemies, you know, we expect to see the cycle repeat again. But instead, we get two more chapters about Gideon and everything that he does after he wins his battles. So the Bible seems to clearly be painting Gideon as someone who is far more complex and nuanced than the people who came before him. And you know, you know how much I like that, right? See, black and white, it's no fun. I need some gray. And Gideon is the perfect example of a gray character in the Bible because on one hand, you read his story, and there are all these wonderful things about him. He's a superlatively excellent leader. He also has, but he also has these very negative aspects to his character that manifest increasingly in the second half of his story. And so Gideon is neither a good judge nor a bad one. He's this transitional figure in the book of Judges. He stands somewhere between good and evil. And I think that if we can chart his rise and his fall, we can maybe identify just where he and the entire book of Judges starts to go wrong. So let's jump in at uh, Judges 6.11. I'd just just say, I just for you to say, I feel bad demystifying these characters in the Bible. You know, I, I point out all of their warts, and I, and I feel especially bad about Gideon because he does have a pretty spectacular rise. So, I did a standard Google search for images of Gideon, and I found tons of pictures like this one. You know, Gideon is this, this huge, muscular warrior, invincible in battle. You know, it makes sense. Look, look how Gideon is introduced. So, an angel of the Lord appears to him while he's out working, and the first thing the angel says to him is, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Now, what an introduction. I wish people introduced me like that. This is Jared. He's a mighty man of valor. So you think the angel would talk about Hercules after he completed his labors in the way he's talking him up. So the angel makes a point to repeat how mighty and brave Gideon is. But if you read closely, you'll notice there's this real dissonance between the angel's words and how Gideon actually presents himself. So when we're introduced to Gideon, he's not performing any mighty acts of valor. He's beating out wheat in a wine press. So the Bible includes this detail for a reason. So not, not many of us here are farmers. Are any farmers here? There's no farmers here. I'm going to have to explain this to you guys. So we don't have a lot of experience with wheat in that anymore. You know, we just kind of buy it from the store. But... Wheat is really supposed to be beaten out in the fields. So what you're doing when you're beating out wheat is you take a pitchfork, from what I understand, I only read this myself from, from Wikipedia, but you take a pitchfork and you grab it, throw it into the air. And what that does is uh, wheat has something called chaff inside of it. It's the stuff you don't eat. And the wind takes the chaff away from, from, from the good stuff. And it takes a lot of space. See, these guys are all outdoors. See, now Gideon, why was Gideon doing this in a wine press in that case? See, Gideon had carried all his wheat into this wine press, this cramped little room under the ground. Did I find a picture? Yeah. He carried it into this cramped little room under the ground, and he was doing all his work there because he was hiding from the Midianites. And the Midianites were those people who were oppressing Israel at the moment. The Midianites did not live in the Israelite territories in those days, they lived on the borders, and whenever the harvest time came around, they would raid into Israelite territory like locusts and they would steal all the food that that Israel had spent all year growing. So Gideon was hiding in the wine press because he was afraid that if some Midianites happened by, they would beat him up and take his lunch money. And look how he responds to God's commission to deliver Israel. Gideon makes every excuse he can to get out of it. I'm from the smallest tribe in Israel, and, and my clan is the smallest clan in my tribe, and I'm the smallest guy in my clan. And it gets even better, you know. Israel asks the angel to prove that he's really an angel, not just some crazy guy who came by this farm. So, long story short, the angel proves to him by bursting into flame, and he disappears into the night sky. And Gideon's reaction is, is great; he's, he's just utterly terrified. So he says, "He's like, oh no, that was God. I was actually talking to God. Oh no, I saw His face. No one can see God's face. I'm going to die. No one can see God's face. I'm going to die." So Gideon is freaking out so much. That this poor angel, who just made this great dramatic entry, exit, he, he actually has to come back and calm Gideon down again. So I can just imagine the angel going back to God. He's like, uh, God, I, I, I delivered your message to the mighty man of valor you were talking about, but I think, I think I might have gotten the wrong guy. So what's happening here? On one hand, we read that Gideon is strong, and he's brave, but on the other hand, you know, many of his actions are, are those of someone who is very fearful and cowardly. See, what I think we're seeing here is a man who is at war with his own nature. See, on one hand, God is absolutely right about Gideon. And he does prove himself to be brave and a great leader. But on the other hand, he also suffers from a lot of fear. See, God intentionally calls him, a mighty man of valor. And this, is, this isn't to just butter him up. God's not trying to flatter him. God, it's, God calls him this because he can see the courage inside of Gideon, even if Gideon can't see it in himself. God is encouraging Gideon to embrace the best parts of himself, not the worst. You know, it's very telling that God reveals himself to Gideon while he was separating the wheat from the chaff. Gideon was pulling out the good parts of the wheat and throwing away the useless parts. And God is doing the same thing to Gideon that Gideon is doing to the wheat. God is saying, get out of that wine press. Stop hiding. Don't be afraid. Be the man I know you can be. So the whole rest of the story of Gideon is God attempting to separate the wheat from the chaff when it comes to Gideon's soul. And the story, it's just fascinating. You know, on one hand, Gideon is this amazing person. He does everything that God tells him to do, and he does it with excellence. But on the other hand, we see this fear and these negative qualities creeping up at every opportunity. Gideon is struggling with the two sides of his nature, struggling between the the courageous servant of God and the selfish man that are both living inside of his soul. I'm going to show you what, what I mean here. So Gideon is living at home on his father's farm, and his father had these idolatrous images on his property. He had an altar to, to Baal, who was a Canaanite weather deity. So, and, and a Sharapol, which is a fertility goddess. So you know how Adonai feels about that stuff. He doesn't like it. So God tells Gideon to begin his new career with a big statement. Tear down these idols. Let all of Israel see that Adonai is God. So what does Gideon do? Well, on one hand, Gideon does exactly what he's told. He tears down the altar and he cuts down the pole. But on the other hand, Gideon doesn't make much of a statement at all. Rather than acting in boldness, Gideon sneaks out at night to knock the stuff down because he was afraid that the people who were supposed to be—he was afraid of the very people he was supposed to be inspiring. You know, and in the end, Gideon doesn't even stand up for himself when the people come out saying, "What did you do to our gods?" His father has to protect him. His father comes out and says, "You know, you know." Leave, leave Gideon alone. If, if Baal, wants to, Baal has an issue with him, Baal can come down and fight him himself. You know? Gideon obeys, but his faith in God is tinged with fear. And the fear is still there, even when we read that God clothes Gideon with the Ruach HaKodesh, and he calls all of the tribes together, but the fear is still there even then. So God commands Gideon to gather the tribes together. And on one hand, Gideon does exactly what he's told. He sends out messengers to all the tribes, and they listen to him. And everyone gathers around, and he gathers this huge army of 30,000 people. But, on the other hand, on the eve of battle, in, you know, everything is going according to plan. The tribes are gathered. The battle plans have been drawn up. Everyone is ready to go. Everyone that is except Gideon. So Gideon goes out, and he's like, Okay, God, um, okay, here's the thing. I, I know you came down, you talked to me face to face. And you told me with your own voice, yes, to fight against the Midianites, but are you really sure that's what you want me to do? Maybe you could uh, give me some kind of sign. So he, he, I don't know, maybe he just took his coat off or something. He lays out a sheet of fleece, and he calls us there. Okay, God, if you want me to do absolutely nothing and just go home, then when the sun rises and dew covers the ground, which it will every day, make sure that there's no dew on the ground, just on this fleece. So no, this is a guy who admits that he has spoken to God face-to-face and received very clear instructions already. He has been given plenty of signs already. He knows exactly what he's supposed to do. It seems to me that he's asking God to break the laws of nature because he's hoping that God won't do it, and then he'll have an excuse to go home. So, of course, God gives me exactly what he asked for. The, the, the Next morning, the, the, ground, the, the whole ground is completely dry, but all to do is on the fleece. This is an unequivocal, yes, Gideon, I want you to fight. So Gideon picks up his wet fleece, and he's like, nuts! Um, Okay, he like, rings it out. like, Okay, God. Um, Maybe that was just a fluke. If you really want me to fight, make it so the ground is wet and the fleece stays dry. So, of course, God makes the ground wet while the fleece stays dry. So Gideon goes up to her third sign, but God just makes lightning strike down, and Gideon runs away. So, so again, what we're seeing is a man who is, on one hand, serving God faithfully, but there's a lot of reluctance and fear involved. And I think that's really important to understand this about Gideon and about ourselves. See, so often we read the Bible and we put these characters on a pedestal, and Judaism is especially guilty of this. We tend to think of our patriarchs and our heroes as these flawless human beings. That's not what real people are like. Real people are like Gideon. We have great courage, and we have enormous faith, but we also have fear, and doubt, and selfishness. There's more than one side to the human soul. We are made up of both good and evil. And it's our goal and our journey to overcome our dark sides and be the people that God wants us to be. And that's definitely Gideon's journey, journey and his struggle. So let's see what happens next. So in chapter 7, I think God decides to teach Gideon a lesson. So Gideon has had all, these, all this self-doubt because he doesn't think that he's brave enough or strong enough to do the job that God wants him to do. He looks at the army he's assembled. And, you know, it's 30,000 people. It's, that's nice. But they're still outnumbered 10 to 1. They said the Midianites probably had 300,000 people in their army. How is Gideon going to pull this off? You know, he's like, I only got 30,000. So God says, basically says, Gideon, it's not your strength that will deliver Israel, it's mine. Gideon, I want you to send two thirds of your army home. That night, 22,000 Israelites left the coalition that Gideon had put together. He put all, all that work to get all those guys here, and all of a t- 22,000 of them leave. Can you imagine how that must have made Gideon feel? I'm an anxious person myself. That happened to me. I, I, I would, my anxiety, I'd be ripping out my beard. So God is, so, so God is smiling now because Gideon's freaking out. He says to Gideon, Hey, Gideon, I still think you have too many guys with you. Bring the army down to the water. I want to give them a test. So they do this, this strange test with the water. Uh, he tells Gideon, Anyone who... All the men who drink from the water, like, a, you know, like, like they, they bend down and drink from that, that's put them in one group. And anyone who picks up the water with their hand and drinks like this, this, put them in a separate group. Separate those guys who drink from their hands. So they do this weird test, and it turns out they separate 300 men from the army. So Gideon must be thinking, oh great, now I'm down another 300 men. That only leaves me with 9,700 9, left. Ugh. Then God says, okay, you can send the 9,000 home. You're going to do your fighting with just these 300. Oof. Now this test is actually interesting. It's a, it's a little mysterious why they picked that way, but look at these guys. Look at the men who are turning their back on their enemies with the spears. Look at the guys who stay up and these are the most valiant. These are the best warriors. These are the, the bravest of this bunch. So, God's basically telling telling Gideon, "I didn't choose you because you are the biggest or the strongest." or the wealthiest. I chose you because I am a God who uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And you're right. You are the youngest member of the poorest family and the smallest tribe in Israel. But your might is not in your arms. It's in your heart. So, we know what happens next. With just 300 men, Gideon completely routs the Midianite army. God tells them to blow shofars and wave torches. And the Midianites, who are in such fear of the God of Israel, as soon as they see this happening, they start panicking. They start falling on each other's swords. They're fighting amongst themselves because they're such panic. And they start running away. So despite all the odds, despite his own fears and doubts and reluctance, Gideon has become the mighty man of valor that God promised that he would be. The end. Oh, not quite. You'd think that would be the end of the story. And if Gideon's tale ended in Judges 7, it would certainly be a happy ending. But I told you before that Judges is a dark and troubling book. It is a story that spirals downward, and I believe that the downward spiral begins right here at the beginning of chapter 8. I told you, Gideon's story is the the fulcrum on which the whole book of Judges rests. And right here at chapter 8 is where the story tips from good to bad. So what happens here? We'll go into it, but remember what Gideon's struggle has been all this time. Gideon is a man who is fighting against his evil inclination. We've seen over and over again that Gideon is a man who has a powerful heart for God. He is obedient, courageous, loyal, and he's a great leader. But at the same time, he's also cowardly, and he's insecure, the book of Judges keeps the focus on him, even after he's won his battle, because he wants to illustrate how Gideon continues to struggle with his light and his dark side. So the first half of Gideon's story, it's all been positive up till now, right? So despite a few small hiccups, Gideon's story up till now has been one of a man overcoming his fear to become a great servant of God. But the story starts to change in chapter 8. It turns out the battle isn't over yet. So, after routing the Midianites with his 300 elites, Gideon recalls the rest of the, of the tribes and he has them join him in pursuing the fleeing army and driving them out of the land for good. So, Gideon is chasing after these two Midianite kings in particular. The names are Zeba and Zalmunna. And you'll find out why he's chasing these two guys in particular soon. And while he's chasing them, he and his men come to the Israelite towns of Sukkoth and Penael. The men are, so his men, they're hungry. They're exhausted. They've been chasing after these guys for a long time. They run out of food. So Gideon comes to these. These are Israelite towns. These are Jewish people. So Gideon asks the towns to provide them with food. Now, this is just, it's just doing their your patriotic duty here. So, shockingly, though, the towns refuse. You know, they, they say to Gideon, Oh, have you caught these kings already? Did, do, you, do you have them in your hands now? Gideon's like, no. Then why should we give bread to your army? You know, I'm I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go side with losers. So they don't give him. They give give him nothing. So this is where it gets really weird. So the Gideon that we've known up till now has been a, a pretty mild guy. You know, he's humble. He's not very outspoken, and he understands his place in God's plan. But all of a sudden, at this moment, Gideon seems to become like a different person. Gideon responds with extreme anger against these towns. He promises that when he comes back from killing these kings, he's going to drag the elders of the town to the square, thrash them with thorns and briars, and tear down the city's tower. So Gideon moves on, and he eventually catches up uh, to those Midianites. He defeats the army and captures the two kings. He then takes the kings captive, and he brings them back to the town. Then, with the kings watching, he not only whips the town elders and tears down the tower, but he also kills all of the men in the city. Now, these are, these, these are Jewish people he's killing. It's like Gideon is saying, telling these kings, this is what I do to my allies. What do you think is going to happen to you? So Gideon then questions these, uh, the two kings. He asks them to describe the men that they had killed in an earlier battle. So apparently there was a, a battle that got on earlier. and uh, So the kings say as you are so they were they answered each one looked like the children of a king so they describe the men that they and they say they look they look like you gideon gideon tells him i was planning to let you live but those were my brothers you killed gideon then turns to his son and his son is still just like a, like a kid he's never seen war before he's never seen his father acting like this and he's never killed anyone before His father says, draw your sword and kill these kings. Become a man and follow in my footsteps. And this boy, he's never killed anyone before. He's too afraid to even draw his sword. And so Gideon kills the kings himself. This is a strange and disturbing episode. What happened to Gideon? You know, on one hand, his actions are completely justified. The townspeople who refuse to help him are clearly disloyal to Israel. And Gideon's whole job was to kill Midianites, but his motives are troubling. Look at the reason that Gideon gives for punishing the towns. So when he comes back to the town with the two king's captives, he comes back to them, he, he came to the men of Sikoth and he said, Behold, Zeben zalmunna about whom you mocked me. Look who I have now, the guys you, ju- you, were, you were insulting me about. You guys insulted me. You mocked me. Gideon isn't punishing the towns so harshly because of their disloyalty. He's punishing them because they insulted him. Gideon is acting for very personal reasons, and it's the same with the two kings. Gideon makes it clear that he's killing the kings as an act of personal revenge. He even says that he was planning on letting them live if they hadn't personally injured him. So Gideon is supposed to be fighting a national battle here. Do you guys remember when Saul spared, the, spared the, king of the, the king of Amalek? You're not supposed to do that. It's a job that you have to do, but Gideon says, you know what? I think I'm going to spare these guys. He doesn't do it, but he doesn't do it for personal reasons. He's fighting a national battle here for God and for Israel, but he seems to be fighting for himself now. Gideon has always struggled with his dark side, but before where the good in him overcame his fear... Now the pendulum seems to have shifted. Gideon is still doing the right thing. He's weeding out corruption from Israel, and he's following God's commands to drive out her enemies. But now his actions are laced with personal ambition. But Gideon's greatest test is yet to come. So in the very next episode, we see the aftermath of the war. The war is finished here, and the men of Israel are all ready to go home. But before they do, they all come together and they make a very tempting offer to Gideon. Yeah. So they go to, they go to Gideon. And the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson as well, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Think about what this must be like for Gideon. A few months earlier, he was hiding in a winepress, and now he is a great hero, and all the people want to make him king. He used to be the youngest member of the poorest clan of the smallest tribe, but now he is the greatest man in the land. He must want to say yes. He must want it so badly, and we know that Gideon has a dark and selfish side. And in this moment, his dark side and his light side, the good in him and the evil in him are at war. They're in conflict with each other. Part of him wants to say yes. Part of him wants to say no. And he's struggling now. But what does Gideon do at this moment? He says, he draws up his strength. He looks these guys in the eyes and he says, I will not rule over you. Nor will my son rule over you. Only God can rule over you. Gideon passes his test. When he's tempted, he refuses kingship. That would be so easy to take. He recognizes that God is the true deliverer of Israel, not Gideon. In the end, Gideon's most courageous act was not in taking up leadership, but putting it back down. So Gideon's story comes to a relatively peaceful conclusion. We read that he judged Israel for the rest of his life, and he died at a good old age, during which there was peace in the land. But even the end of the story has disturbing elements. I told you the the book of Judges is a story that spirals downward. So despite claiming that he did not wish to be king, everything Gideon does from this point on points in the direction that he does want to be one. So before he sends them home, Gideon asks for a tribute from the 12 tribes. He took an earring from every man in Israel. my pictures.. So Gideon asked for a tribute from the 12 tribes, He took an earring from every man in Israel, and he used them to fashion a suit of like golden armor that he sets up in his hometown as a tribute to himself. He sets up in his hometown almost like he's trying to create a new capital of Israel in his own hometown. And he sets up like this golden armor to show the great warrior that delivered them from, from their enemies. So then Gideon goes on and he starts to collect wives and concubines just like a pagan king. And he amasses 70 sons as if he was ensuring that he would have an heir to follow his throne in his steps. Just like a king. So Gideon even names the first son that he has after becoming a judge, he names that boy Abimelech. It means, my father is king. So despite claiming that he did not wish to be king, Gideon certainly acted like one. But that's to be expected from Gideon. He was always at war with himself. See, Gideon always struggled between the parts of him that were loyal and brave and obedient to God's will and the parts of him that were selfish and cowardly and ambitious. So Gideon certainly belongs to the good half of the judges. He brought military salvation and religious guidance to his people, and he led them in peace for an entire generation. But he also paved the way for a decline in the second half of Judges. He was the first judge to act out of personal motivation and revenge. He was the first to set up a dynastic succession with all of his sons. You know, his sons actually would become judge after him, and they would be really bad ones. So Gideon was the last judge to bring peace to Israel for an entire generation, and he was the first judge to make his son judge after him. Gideon was not a black and white person. He has deep shades of gray, but that's what makes him so relatable. Human beings are not simple creatures. There's so much depth and nuance in every person, and like Gideon, we are all on a journey to find those best parts of ourselves. So at this moment, I kind of want to call up my worship team now as we prepare to end our service today. So Gideon's struggle was that throughout his life, he had a divided heart. His heart was deeply for God in many ways, but it was also for himself. And this is a lesson that we can learn from Gideon. Give your heart fully to God. When he is asked what the greatest of all commandments was, Yeshua responded immediately, without hesitation. Love God with all your heart. Not some of it, not half, not some, you know, pre, you know predetermined amount, not some arbitrary amount of your heart. All of your heart. Don't hold anything back. Give it all to God. Be the people we can be, that he knows we can be. Be the courageous, mighty men of valor, and mighty woman of valor that God sees in us even if we can't see in ourselves. But we have to give our hearts completely to him. And we have the opportunity every day to love God with all of our hearts. We can turn to him for every need, to bring all of our hopes to him, to trust him in all, these, in all things congregation.